my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, and Miles talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the news with regard to race, justice, and equity that went underreported or stories that you just didn't hear about but should know about. And then I sit down with Sam Kionis to talk about his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I learned so much. I'm familiar with some of his work, but this interview really taught me so much more than I knew before. My advice for this week is to go to the movies or like watch a movie with a friend. There's so many good documentaries out. I've seen so many great things. And uh, the coolest part about it is I've been able to see it with friends. Also, I've been obsessed with young adult fiction. I'll have some book recommendations next week. Uh, but my advice is to also read some young adult fiction. You always get the lesson. So today's news for me is actually not news. It is um, just a reflection on me going to um, a couple of plays. I saw the collaboration, which was all about Andy Warhol and Basquiat and their collaboration. And that was cool and interesting and, you know, filled with lies and and things historically that didn't happen, but I I thought that was interesting. And the second um, play that we saw the following day was A Strange Loop. Strange Loop is really interesting uh, to me because... I was kind of like hearing so much stuff about it. I was here. I was hearing um, you should go see it. This should be. This will be really interesting to you. And I saw it, and I was like, "Why would this be interesting to me?" So, Strange Loop is written by Michael R. Jackson. It is about a fat black queer, um, well, just like a fat black gay man uh, who is writing a play and or excuse me, writing a musical and it's this meta confrontation with his own like inner demons and inner thoughts and and complexities and 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 what's halting him from writing this musical. Which I can see how that would be appealing to me. But you know, this is maybe the th- fourth, fifth time I've been sitting in a theater and felt uh assaulted felt like I was seeing things that were that were never meant for me to see, never meant for me to 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 be there and I didn't know it. Um the only way I can truly make a metaphor out of it is as if you go to a theater thinking you're going to see um I don't know Little Richard or Billy Holiday, and you went there thinking you're gonna see Little Richard and Little and Billy Holiday, but then you see a white person in blackface saying horrendous things to you, and now all of a sudden you're assaulted in a way that you were not prepared for, and that's what I found with a strange loop. I really felt like I was watching a film where the mother was depicted by a seemingly cis man with no makeup on and she was eating fried chicken. And listen, I'm not a comedic prude. I am not somebody who 
I love provocative content. I love uh, comedy and and um, art that is provocative. And I think that Black people need that. I think sometimes we can have to be so excellent and so um, and and so square sometimes that that's the only that that we don't get to be provocative and 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 transgressive and subversive. But I didn't find it to be any of those things. I found it just to be minstrelsy and. I guess why I thought this was news was because sometimes around what we're about to go into January and February, we end up in the news cycle talking about award shows and talking about who's nominated for this and what happened at that and and who's gonna who's got snubbed for this and that. And you know, this is a Tony Award winning um play. This is a play that is is extremely decorated. Um, I want to say it got a Pulitzer. Like it's 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 extremely decorated. And I looked at it and I said, this is also why we can't hold the standards of white institutions and what they think are think is excellence or why popularity or how much um, money is able to generate like that cannot be what we measure excellence on because this is award-winning, blockbustering minstrelsy. And I don't know what's happening in the theater community. And this is me as an outsider. This is me as somebody who maybe a little bit before the pandemic, once I got to New York, I was in the financial space so I could even see theater. So I don't know if maybe because I'm not steeped in it and I come from a Black neighborhood and I have a Black feminist background, but I have never... I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I think that if more of these works that I've been seeing that are so antiquated and, 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 and so offensive, I think that if I saw more of those things, or if, excuse me, if the public saw more of those things, there would be some really interesting conversations ha- happening. I think because it's happening in a, in a more insular, in an insular community, a lot of these conversations are not, are not happening. Again, I think that because I share a similar identity, even though I do not identify as a man, but like I share identify as a similar identity as a black, uh, queer, fat person in the world, people thought I would like it. And the 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 thing the thing is, I don't like seeing, you know, black women. Mocked. I don't like seeing stereotypes of fried chicken on the on the theater stage in order to express some type of irony that will hopefully make um, white people chuckle because look, we can do dry humor too. Like I don't like the idea of seeing um, somebody dressed and mocking, you know, Zora Neale Hurston and humping the floor. I don't. I don't I don't I don't like seeing any of those things. It wasn't interesting to me and I think more than anything it was it was done for no point. I I really felt the I left the play I was like, well, it would be different if, if if I was offended or if something provocative happened and it moved me to a thought or it moved me somewhere, but it just didn't move me somewhere. But maybe, like my partner suggested, maybe it moved the white audience member somewhere. Maybe this was uh, 
elementary at best, minstrelsy at worst for me, but it was educational and, and, and provocative for somebody else who doesn't have my experience. But I would really love to see the day where, like Toni Morrison has said, like I've said, like Bell Hooks has said, I would love to see the day where Black people, specifically now, I'm talking about these Black queer uh, playwrights, would write for a gaze that is theirs, right for them at 16, 17, 18, right for them, right for what they need. Do not write with this perpetual white gaze in your head, you know? No matter if that is a white male authority that that's more like Hemingway, or if it's like the play said, your quote-unquote inner white girl, Either one of those things is not a good place to create work from, and it ends up being just to me so so dangerous and so and and just and just a, a mocking of all the work that we've done. And again, I think there's so many ways to be provocative and to be funny and to bring levity to the black experience and be ironic. And I think that again, we shouldn't have to create these. Selma historical dramas in order to get awards or in order to um, be seen as great. But I also think that we should be mindful of what we're spewing out and, and, and make sure maybe we work through some stuff before we stage it. Because after that show, I felt like I was drenched in the venom of somebody else's unworked through emotional, racial, anti-Black, anti-fat trauma. And that's that's not progressive. That's not subversive. That's just actually making sure that exactly what the theater originally was created for stays, stays where it is. And when that's making somebody like me feel terribly uncomfortable and making somebody else feel who, who is cl- closer to white feel um, accepted and entertained. That is that is what theater was originally made for, and there was nothing sub- there's nothing subversive about what I was seeing there. So yeah, that's my news for today. That's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's you know I would never say not to go see something. I think that everybody should go see it. I think everybody should see things that people think are good and bad, and I think we should all be talking about it. And I think that no matter what, it helps stretch the consciousness of a person by viewing things that they both love and both um, abhor. So I would never say not to see it, but I would say be prepared for what you're going to see. And I really can't wait until I go to the theater and see works by these Black queer people and see something that leaves me feeling warm or leaves me feeling, leaves me feeling pushed, leaves me feeling expanded and not something that I feel like is talking right past my shoulder to the white person behind me, hoping that they now understand the struggles, you know, no, talk to me and you know, that's, that's, that, that's what I wanted to bring this week and bring to you all to discuss and to chew on. So my news is about Hawaii. There's so much about native Hawaii, about Hawaii that I literally just didn't know and still don't know and I'm learning. But this was about unexploded bombs. So part of the government's commitment to native Hawaiians is to give back the land. And 
That is a big deal because as you can imagine with colonialism and what we did to just push out indigenous people across this country, uh, we owe indigenous communities so much more than they've gotten. And what is interesting is that there are large parts of Hawaii uh, this there's one large part particularly that was used after World War II broke out called the Waikola region. And it was used for live fire exercises where the Marines trained in battle-like conditions with artillery shells, rockets, grenades, tank rounds, and a whole lot of other stuff. Officials estimated that about 10% of the munitions they used, like the grenades and bombs and stuff, didn't actually detonate during the trainings. So before leaving in 1946, the military conducted a cleanup. The problem was that the cleanup didn't catch everything. So in 1954, two people were killed and three people were injured when a shell exploded. In 1983, two more people were injured when an old shell exploded. And it led people to say like, hey, okay, we didn't get up all the shells and all the munitions that were put down after World War II. The Department of Hawaiian Homelands manages about 12,000 acres within this zone that's a part of the land trust. And it was set up in 1921 by Congress to help people make sure they get their land. And the state took it over in 1959. And under the program, anybody who's at least 50% Native Hawaiian is entitled to lease land for $1 a year and either build or buy a home on it. And over the years, a lot of people did in the Wakola region. The problem, though, is that somebody applied for a loan in 2014, and it was denied because the loaner was like, hey, this land isn't yet free of munitions. And that prompted this huge push uh, where HUD no longer gave government-backed mortgages to get property on the land, effectively freezing anybody out from building until the, until the munitions have been cleared. But here's the catch. The munitions haven't been cleared. So the Army Corps of Engineers has been working for a long time to try and clear as many munitions as they can. And they've already conceded that it'll be impossible to clear it all because of the high iron in the ground in um, in Hawaii and also the terrain, but to get it down to like a, a negligible level, but they just haven't actually been able to do it. So there are hundreds of people who are ready to build, ready to buy, ready to use the land, Native Hawaiians, but they literally can't because uh, it's not clear of munitions. And I just had no, I really didn't know. I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know that the government committed to give the land back. I didn't know that we were <laughs> putting bombs in the ground and not knowing where we put them. Uh, in Hawaii, like that's sort of wild. And as you can imagine, there are some people that can pay the price themselves. So there are people who have gotten, the, the article details this one person who paid $25,000 to sweep his mother's land so that he could get a loan to replace her home. So people are able to do it outside of the Army Corps engineers, but the government in giving the land back was supposed to make sure the land was inhabitable and has not actually done that. And this just like reminded me that it is not enough to make the commitment to give land back. It's not enough to try and correct the wrong on the surface, you actually have to like follow all the way through. And what the article highlights is just the sheer challenge of making sure uh, that the land is actually safe for people to live on. And I wanted to bring it here because I don't know if you knew anything about this, but I didn't know anything about this. Uh, and it was published in ProPublica and I thought it was a fascinating story. So here we go. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp, visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. My news this week delves into how American history has been interpreted in the naming of military bases. So a little history to get us started. After the Civil War, Confederate generals were pariahs. They were seen as traitors and many were indicted and tried for treason. But in 1868, then President Andrew Johnson granted full pardon and amnesty for the offense of treason against the United States. And many of these generals began to be celebrated by Southerners who were holding on to the idea of the lost cause. In 1917, the Army went on ahead and did an even crazier thing. They created a specific policy that says that bases that house Southerners should be named for Confederate commanders. Nine of them still stand today and will shortly be renamed. The current Defense Secretary, Lloyd J. Austin III, ordered the changes to be implemented after a congressional commission recommended a list of distinguished heroes for the new base names, 
Thankfully, the changes will be effectuated by the end of 2023. How does this feel for Black service members? Well, Black service members make up about 17% of all active duty military personnel. And Timothy Berry, who's a West Point graduate and was an Army captain with the 101st Airborne Division, summed it up best. He says generations of Black service members signed up for military service to defend the values of their country only to be assigned to bases named after people who represent its grimmest hour. Can you imagine serving your country on a base that is named for somebody who actively worked to to protect and defend slavery? This renaming is long overdue. In fact, it's had consensus for a while from former senior military officials of all races, congressional leaders, and others. despite the fact that President Trump said he would block any bases from being renamed. Thankfully, he's gone, and so that is no longer the case. The list of new potential names is said to embody the best of the United States Army and the best of America, and it includes African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, women, and civilians who supported the Army. I brought this to the pod this week because everywhere we talk about microaggressions as people of color, um, everywhere we're fighting on every front. There are still more than 1,500 streets and schools and other um, markers within the armed services system that are named for Confederate generals and for Confederate uh, people. And, you know, we are excited and delighted that these um, spaces will be renamed for people who are much more appropriate. Um, but we still, we're still fighting. We're still fighting on every front. Thankfully, since the murder of George Floyd, we've had a higher level of awareness about these things. But I wanted to bring this to the pot because lots of people don't know that this thing is about to happen. And um, I, I hope you take a look if you click on the news link, you'll see the biographies of the people who have served and who will now be honored. And these are the heroes that America deserves to have carrying names on their basis. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. 
This week, we welcome award-winning author and journalist Sam Keonis to chat about his new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of American Hope in the Time of Fentanyl Meth. Sam Keonis traveled from Mexico to main streets across the U.S. to talk about the dark realities of America's opiate epidemic. It was an incredible book. I learned so much. There was so much we couldn't talk about because we just didn't have time, but great book. You must read it. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Uh, great to be with you, Dere. I appreciate the, uh, the interest. Thanks for taking the time. So both my parents were addicted to drugs. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three. I have always been close to the topic of addiction. Uh, but in reading your book, I realized there were so many things I just didn't know. I like... Uh, we don't have enough time to cover all the million stories and questions. I'm like, ah! but listeners know that this is one of the few things that I think should be required reading for anybody who cares about um, addiction and certainly opioids. So I'll start there. But I will ask you, how did you get to that? Like what what made you start caring about not only addiction, but what's so beautiful about the book is that it really is like a it's like a history of how we got here. What got you to that? Well, I would say that the first thing was I lived in Mexico for 10 years. I came back to the United States in 2004 to work for the LA Times. And and there I began to realize that we were seeing an enormous uptick in heroin seizures and use. And I could not understand why that was. And and I came upon the story actually in a, in, a, in my first book on this topic, Dreamland, um, about these guys who sold heroin very much like pizza. They're from this one town in Mexico. And that was right in my, my wheelhouse. I had spent a ton of time writing about Mexican villages where immigration was a big deal, drug trafficking and all that was uh, um, uh, also a big deal. And so I began to write about these guys from this one little town. And along the way, I began to realize that the reason they had this new burgeoning heroin market was because of a much, much bigger story that I was oblivious to because I'd lived in Mexico during all these years. And that was the, the revolution in opioid in pain management, the opioid revolution in pain management, where doctors were convinced and, and pushed and badgered to prescribe opioid painkillers for almost any kind of pain and endless refills. And a lot of people got addicted who had not been before creating a brand new market. And then the heroin traffickers from Mexico get involved. And then um, I finished that book, and um, that book created, I believe, quite a lot of awareness about this issue nationwide, which up to that point was really uh, muted. Um, and, um, and so I began to speak around the country. And as I did that, I watched the story change like in real time over the next several years. And, and it went from being a doctors and pharma companies, which was all the, the story in Dreamland, to the story in The Least of Us, which is all about uh, Mexican traffickers uh, switching from plant-based drugs to synthetics and all the changes that that means for drug profits and smuggling and manufacturing and use and addiction and treatment, et cetera. It was a remarkable thing to understand taking place and watch as I, as I traveled the country talking about what was increasingly being an, becoming an old story. Um, and by the time uh, COVID came around, it was really, the story was really um, fentanyl and methamphetamine, two drugs that you make without any plants involved. And that's where the drug trafficking world is in Mexico right now. I don't believe they'll be changing because it's so profitable and so um, easy for them to, to produce drugs in that way. That is a very quick uh, thumb, you know, 
thumbnail sketch of, of how I got into all this, but it really starts because I lived in Mexico for so many years. Now, let's zoom all the way out. And people heard about the opioid crisis. People heard about uh, Oxycontin would be, I think, something that a lot of people have heard about that crisis. But how would you define, like, what is what are opioids? Like, how would you answer that question? Sure. These are a, a class of drugs that hit what are known as the opioid receptors in our brain. They, they act on those, on those receptors. Those receptors govern pain. They govern, uh, govern um, a, a breathing, respiratory system, and they govern the bowels. And, um, and it's the pain aspect of that that's really the important one. Opioids um, are, well, most of them are derived from opium. They, they, they come from the opium poppy, but they're now synthetic opioids that are made only from chemicals, and fentanyl is, is the, the most uh, prominent one that also hit those receptors and affect those receptors. Fentanyl, by the way, it is a fantastic drug. It's a magnificent drug in the surgical setting. I've had it. Many, many, many people have had it. It's been a workhorse drug for 50, 60 years in, in surgery. Um, and and, and it, it does so because it's such a good pain reliever. It keeps, it keeps you from feeling pain. And then it takes you right out of, 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 of anesthesia once the surgery is done. It's also extraordinarily potent. And all of this makes it very, very damaging when used by the the underworld, but opioids as a class are, are those that affect the the parts of our brain that are known as opioid receptors, and they govern. They tell us when we have pain. They tell us to breathe. They tell us when to use the bathroom, basically, too. Um, so all of these drugs are are as a class known as known as opioids. Now, one of the things I didn't know until reading your book was about the. Oh, what's the word for it? The derivatives of fentanyl? You call it something else. There's like another word for it. Yeah, analogs. Analogs. Ah, the analogs of fentanyl. And I just didn't realize it. Like I knew fentanyl was more powerful than morphine. But as you take us through the like fentanyl 2, fentanyl 3, fentanyl 4, like the chapters of the book, when you talk about these even more intense versions of fentanyl, like how how did you come across that? that? Is that really still a challenge in communities? Yes, I would say it can be. Um, I, I would say fentanyl analogs were, uh, the guy who invented fentanyl was a, a profound, very, very bright chemist, one of the great scientific minds of the 20th century, Paul Janssen. When he invented fentanyl, he knew enough about chemistry to know that all, he, all real chemists had to do was manipulate the molecule a little bit, something that I cannot explain to you as a layman, but he understood to be the case. And when you did these little manipulations, you would come up with other forms of fentanyl that were just like cousins, chemical cousins, you might say, that, that are similar but not the same. And as time went on, they, uh, it became clear to him that they were even more potent than, than fentanyl. So acetyl fentanyl is like 15 times more powerful than fentanyl itself, for example. There's, there's dozens, there's probably hundreds of these, in fact. And the most, the most bizarre one, I guess you could say, is car fentanyl, which is actually not, there's no human use for it. It's actually a sedative for rhinoceroses and elephants. And it's something like 10,000 times more potent than morphine or something like that. It's just a, a remarkable thing. You, it's, it's so potent that you actually, need, I think, need a microscope to understand how much would actually uh, kill you. Um, but all of these become possible product, pro- products um, once the trafficking world in Mexico and elsewhere in the world 
um, impl- begin to employ chemists who know what they're doing and know what they're reading when they're li- reading the chemical literature in a way that I do not. Again, I'm a layman and all this. But, but they begin to start making this stuff. And um, I would say, though, that in, in, and so you begin to see these analogs creeping into communities all across America, acetylfentanyl, fentanyl, cyclopropyl fentanyl. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There are many, many of these. Parafluoral fentanyl is another one uh, more recently. Um, but the Mexican world, I think mostly they don't really care about this. What they really care about now is just making straight up fentanyl. It's easier to make. They know how to make it, and it won't kill as many people, and, and it's dirt, dirt cheap uh, uh, to make. And so I would say that for a while, the analogs, fentanyl analogs were a big deal, and you found them popping up all over. Um, and I think that's really kind of dropped off now that the Mexicans are kind of taken over, have taken over the market. Now, let's go back to a topic that a lot of people have heard about, myself included. I will admit that I didn't really understand it until I read your book, and that's about uh, Oxycontin. Right. I didn't know that the Sackler family and Purdue had innovated uh, pharmaceutical um, marketing, had no clue. And I also didn't know that Oxycontin was such a wild, that that was essentially the majority. I knew it was the majority, but I didn't realize it was like almost 90% of the revenue. I had no... I have no clue. Can you talk about what it was like to research that part of it? And, and how do you think they've, how are they still a company? Like, I mean, like you, you detail so <laughs> incredibly how they manipulated people. I didn't know, you know, in my mind, the, the pharmaceutical, um, the reps that they sent, like knew something about drugs. You're like, these people were like athletes and random people just pushing drugs on doctors. And then the story of the doctor who gets hooked and becomes a pizza delivery guy. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, well, you know, um, OxyContin was really not a, a, tr- a new drug. It was a new way of administering an old drug. The old drug is oxycodone, which is an, uh, an opioid that was invented in like around World War One, a lot of years ago. And they, they developed this method for leaking it into your system, a continuous um, time release system. And that's why they call it OxyContin, oxycodone continuous, basically. The, 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 and, and, and it would have been my, my contention is, I think, that we would be erecting statues in the honor of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma had they only decided to market this in a more judicious way, only to cancer patients, maybe some chronic pain patients, end of life care, sure, post-surgery, yes. And instead, they decided to market it as the cure-all to almost every pain you might have. And and, um, and, 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 and without any risk of addicting the, the, the patient and, and this was an, and, and, and a, a aggressive marketing. So they developed a variety of marketing techniques that were used before to non-addict for non-addictive, almost over the counter drugs, you know, constantly badgering the doctors going, taking the doc, bringing lunch, not for the, just for the doctor, but the, for the whole doctor's whole office. So once you have the the nurses and the staff on your side, uh, that doctor is putty in your hands, and they learn that real quick. And the the amount of of visits, the numbers of visits that that the uh, Purdue um, uh, Pharma, which is the Sackler's company, uh, 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 subjected doctors to, was just remarkable. This was all happening at a time when when there was this movement to say we need to use more of these drugs. We this can eradicate pain. There was almost this religious mission to eradicate pain in America using 
this one tool that doctors were up to that point very, very reluctant to use because they knew that these drugs were highly, highly addictive. And now the the science now said, supposedly, according to that's some pure nonsense, but the doc, they said the science now showed that this was non-addictive when used used to treat pain. And this, Purdue Pharma pushed this idea very, very aggressively. Again, had they marketed this to just a certain percentage of the of the of the health consumers in America, you know, end of life care, that kind of thing, post surgical care, whatever, we'd be, I believe, because it's a fantastic drug when used properly. The problem was it's not for everybody. It's not for all these different situations. And it really led us to heroin because it had no, it took people's tolerances up to very high levels. That in order to, to leak oxycodone into your system all day long, those pills had to come with a lot of oxycodone in it. And there was no abuse deterrent. There was nothing to keep you from abusing it. So people's tolerance went went way high. Doctors began to cut them off, think, oh my God, what the hell have I done? We've 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 screwed, you know, we screwed this person up. Oh my God, stop giving them any of that. People lost their insurance. People lost their doctors. Doctors didn't want to do it after a bit. And they had to go to the street. On the street, the pills were by now sold on a black market, dollar a milligram. You can't afford dollar a milligram if you're doing 200 milligrams a day. And so that's when people begin to switch to heroin. And heroin and oxycodone are very, very similar. They're all opioids, remember. They all have the similar effects. They're all pain management, can be used for pain management, um, but they're all very, very addictive. And so what you began to see is oxycodone taking, oxycontin rather, taking people up to very high levels of addiction, of tolerance, of dependence, and then being cut off, and then them, those same folks having to go to the street, and the street, they can't afford the pills on the street, and switching to heroin. And so oxycodone was really the bridge that brought people to heroin. And after a while, of course, people are shooting up, and at that point, you know, they're, they're fully, they're, they're, their lives are fully falling apart. Now, how have they evaded, you know, you talk about some of the, you talk about one of the settlements, you talk about some of the practices that they said that they had changed. And then you sort of say not as much changed as people wanted. Is that still the case since the book came out? Has something changed? Do you think, is there on the horizon? I, I think that, that with, um, with uh, the Sackler family, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm, they, they have filed for bankruptcy they have filed for kind of complete reorganization of their of their company. I'm in no way an expert on bankruptcy laws on America, that's for sure. But minor, but in order to um, uh, avoid criminal prosecution, which is what a lot of people would like to see, they have put up a lot of money. Six billion dollars is what I remember last figure. Um, according that may have changed recently, but I don't I don't think so. And so with their with the idea being we will put up six billion dollars, we'll reorganize the company, we will be fully out of this company. No Sacklers will be involved. We'll never get involved in the pharmaceutical industry again. All that kind of stuff is stipulated. And 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 meanwhile we'll put up six billion dollars, which will be paid to uh, cities, counties, tribes. Um, to deal with um, issues related to addiction, to opioids. Um, and, and, and that's kind of where they are. The, uh, bankruptcy laws allow that to happen, um, say that you can put up money, a lot of money, and then you'll avoid criminal prosecution. Um, uh, again, that's a very controversial thing. Uh, you can talk to lots of families who've been affected by this, and they are just outraged at the, that the Sacklers will be able to move on uh, from all this. But that's kind of where where the whole thing stands. Um, 
now that now now that a number of years have passed, I was surprised to see all this because when I was writing Dreamland, I mean, there was no, you know, I, I had no feeling that these guys would ever be held account held to account for any of this. They're just too powerful. The plaintiffs were people who by then were fully on the street, fully addicted, and they they had horrible life histories. They had ripped off their kids, their, their grandmothers. They'd been in and out of jail. I mean, they, there was no way they were going to make a good plaintiff. And, and so I just thought to myself, this company is going to skate. And then the book comes out, and pretty soon awareness grows, and on and on and on it goes. And pretty soon you've got you've got this um, uh, all these lawsuits. When I filed my manuscript for Dreamland, there were three lawsuits against these companies. And now after, after a, a couple of years after the book came out, I think there were 2,600, you know, everybody began to say, Hey, we all of us are bearing this enormous weight. Every County, every tribe, every town in America seemed to be bearing this enormous weight from this problem. And, and finally people were saying, Hey, well, maybe these drug companies ought to be paying some of this. Now there were a lot of little nuggets in the book that I that like weren't your big points, but that stuck with me. Like I didn't realize it wasn't just doctors; it was dentists. I learned that. Sure, I a lot realize, of dentists. You said it. I'm like I'm. You know, I almost broke the book. I'm like I can't highlight enough. I'm like ah, <laughs> uh, the magic bullet. Didn't know that the magic bullet was like the. That's why you that's why you first begin to see the first fentanyl that comes over is a fascinating story, man. I was like totally enthralled with it almost. The, the first fentanyl that starts coming over into the United States in about 2013, 14, 15 is all from China. And it's heading to they're they're advertising on the web that you can buy our, our fentanyl. And we'll say, so all these dealers viewing fentanyl as their new lottery ticket. Say, oh, I'm going to buy a pound of, of of fentanyl from this guy on the web, and they'll they were sending it through the mail, like little Manila envelopes and stuff like that, with a kilo, with a pound of fentanyl, a quarter pound of fentanyl, whatever it was. But the problem was with fentanyl; it's so potent that you got to um, mix it with something else. You can't; it's so potent that just the smallest few grains of the stuff will will make you high, and another couple of grains will kill you. And so, but you can't sell little grains, almost like like salt on the street. And so you have to mix it with something else. And so it was the first time that really that on the street, street dealers saw that their own profit was mixed with, was, was connected to their ability to mix a very, very potent drug with something that, you know, some lactose or something, a filler of some kind. And the, and the problem was then that a lot of them didn't have a clue what they were doing. And the myth arose on the street, particularly in places like Ohio, Kentucky. I heard it also in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, various places like that, where you begin to see people hearing, uh, believing the idea that the best way to mix your fentanyl was with a magic bullet blender of the kind that you can buy, like in Target for like, I think back then it was like $29.95, right? It was on infomercials. And I I, want to say this, uh, Dre, I, I own a magic bullet blender. It's fantastic uh, tool. You know, I make you make smoothies with it. Uh, salsa, you know, you could do all kinds of things with that little machine and it's great. Um, but it's a really, really bad instrument with which to mix fentanyl because it uses a blade and this are powders. Powders don't mix with blades. You got to shake them. That's how you, that's how you mix powders. People weren't getting this. And what the result was all this fentanyl was coming out onto the street. Some of it had, some of what was called fentanyl had nothing in it. It was so poorly mixed. Some of it had nothing in it. Mm. Other had enough to kill three people. 
you know, and so you begin to see these like really bad mixes of fentanyl and 50, 75 overdoses like at a weekend and paramedics going crazy trying to keep up with it all. And that was the early days of, of fentanyl. The Mexicans took it over and that really has and, and have solved those issues by by mixing it better. But but the early days, uh, you, the magic bullet blender and other types of mixers like coffee grinders, stuff like that. Were, were the reason why the mixes were so bad and people were overdosing such numbers. And what, um, what do we do? What did you find out? Like, is there a fix? Is it a, I don't know, like how do you know, and you talk about some things, right? You write about um, uh, the case that got China to stop importing right. it to the United States, even though that guy seems to not have been held accountable, but like, no. what's the fix? No, I don't think that, I think it's, it's, I don't think I, I don't ever talk about the fix. I, I think, and I, I think that's, you know, there is not one solution. There are many, many solutions. There's no, there's no solution. There's many solutions and they all need to be kind of employed together. You know, um, one of, uh, I, I believe that um, there's, there's a, a wide latitude now for using, uh, we're seeing new experiments in, in jail. Now, jail for years has been this place, kind of an extension of the throw away the key, the, the best manifestation of the throw away the key idea uh, in American law enforcement was the jail, where you just go and you vegetate. And that's the best you could say about it. People would go and they have their lives destroyed in jail. But what you're finding now is that you're finding people who are seeing that jail can actually be a lifesaver and that, that people are now using jail as places to, to begin recovery. And, and transforming jail. So you're no longer just sitting around watching Judge Judy. You are now involved in everything that you would be involved in had you not, ha, were you in a regular rehab clinic on the outside, except for that um, uh, the problem with regular rehabs on the outside is that the drugs that are out there now don't allow for people to really go into them and stay. I mean, they're so so mind controlling. The fentanyl and methamphetamine today are just so potent and powerful. So there's these, I'm, I'm very interested, by the way, in getting out to the city of Columbus. Columbus is about to open what I think might be the most revolutionary jail in America in about a month. I think in actually in January is when I think they told me they were opening it. It's a radical departure from everything we've ever known about jail. And, and so what, what it allows, though, is for us to or what what hopefully will allow uh, the city of Columbus to do is take people off the street where they can't leave because it's jail. But on the other hand, they're not sitting around just just festering and and decaying. They are spending time in in um, classes. There's going to be high school classes. There's going to be college classes, GED classes. I think there's going to be uh, places for uh, prayer meditation. There's going to be workout rooms. There's going to be um, oh, there's a whole bunch of things that I think are going to make there's there's supervised detox because when you come in off the street you're going to withdraw, and and they're going to take you and kind of they they have supervised medical uh, medically supervised uh, detox and withdrawal maintenance so that they can watch you so it will not uh, it be too devastating to your to your body and your mind. Um, all of this, there's, there's a whole lot more and I can't wait to go see it, honestly, because I think it, but I think the, the drugs on the street now, fentanyl and meth are so potent, so prevalent, so much of it is everywhere. Baltimore 
is went from being a heroin town for decades to now a fentanyl town. And the truth about fentanyl is nobody survives on, on the street. There's no such thing as a long-term fentanyl user. I'm sure in, in, in Baltimore and other towns that I know, um, people survive for a lot of, lot of years on heroin on the street, but that's not the case of fentanyl. Everybody is going to die. So the idea is if ever, we need to get those folks off the street. Up to now, we really have not a good place to put them. And my feeling is this, this movement to rethink, completely top to bottom, rethink jail. So it's nothing like what we've known as the throw away the key kind of depot in a sense, um, is really one of the ways we begin to, to work on this. However, there, it, that's not the only, by any means, the only thing. And I really do believe that, that, that in the counties that I wrote about and in, in the least of us where they're doing these works on, this work on jail, what they've also understood is that we need to develop what's best called, I guess, recovery-ready communities, communities where there's all these services around so that, so that people in recovery from addiction have a better chance at success, helping get their driver's license back, pay their fines for um, uh, probation or child custody or all that kind of stuff, get clothes, get, get jobs, get, get, get housing. And, and the counties where this is working, um, that continuum of care on the outside is so important. So it's not just one thing. It is many things, a kind of an orchestrated in concert kind of idea that, that begin by thinking, rethinking a lot of what we've had, uh, what, what we've done with regard to addiction up to now. Boom. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we can figure out how to build supports and resources for people that don't require jail. You know, like we should do these things in community. Um, how yes. can people stay in touch with you? Like how do people make sure they know the next thing you write, articles you write? Sure. Is, it, is it a website? Is it Twitter? What is it? Yeah. No, I'm on. I mean, if you're a writer these days, you got to be on all that stuff, I guess. Um, um, my website is samquinones.com, S-A-M-Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S.com. I'm on Facebook at Sam Quinones, uh, journalist. On Instagram, Sam Quinones underscore author. Twitter, Sam Quinones seven. I mean, it goes on and on. All my books are available on uh, Amazon um, and all the other uh, online places wherever you'd buy books at uh, uh, Audible, ebook, et cetera, paperback. It just came out in paper. Least of Us just came out in paperback. Um, I too, by the way, am, am hopeful that we can begin to understand that what is necessary is that jail is only the first place that really what is necessary is an entirely new approach to, first of all, addiction recovery on the outside, but then also um, a community development as well. And, and, and so many places in the country, part of the problems that, that accompany a drug addiction are dead end jobs or jobs that pay nothing, you know, uh, 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 an education background that's really not appropriate for the global economy, all these kinds of things. These are parts of developing, in my opinion, the prevention aspect to, to drug addiction uh, uh, that, are, that are, I believe, just absolutely essential. But I, don't, I, I also want to stress, as I did before, that this is not one thing. There's, there's this whole community approach to it that I believe is, is an essential thing to do. And, and really, um, without that, um, uh, we, we spin on our wheels a bit. Now, the last two questions I would ask everybody, the first is, uh, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the year that stuck with you? Um, yes, as a journalist, the, make, your, make your career about 
not writing about what you know, but writing about what you don't know, but you're going to find out all about. To me, that is that is the most important thing. I mean, I think so many times we kind of stick with what we know and don't move beyond that in, in life, but certainly as journalists. And I, I believe that that's an essential thing to always be learning, always be trying to find out, always be immersing um, yourself in this in this kind of stuff, and 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 learning where other uh, about, all the time. And that's what makes, first of all, for a happy life. It also makes for um, healthy. Uh, intellectually um, honest uh, journalism seems to me. And then the last question is, what do you say to people who have done all the things? They read your book, read my book, protested, testified, went to the meetings, and they're like, the world hasn't changed to get better. What do you say to those people? That and people and I would say that, that social change comes in the smallest increments. It really does. That's like a recovering addict struggling with addiction, right? Working on day by day, by day. And I would say that little by little, the, the change, the best change, the most healthy change that does not, is not accompanied, in my opinion, by overwhelming unintended consequences that we, 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 we regret later. It comes in the smallest increments by building alliances and on, in the smallest ways, at, on your street, at your school, at the park nearby, uh, wherever you uh, 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 go to worship, um, et cetera, et cetera. There, I mean, to me, it's it's the small stuff that gets things moving forward and begins to develop the synergies with other people who are of like mind and people and other people who are not of like mind, but nevertheless can see what you're doing and see that maybe that might. Uh, they might be in, in, in favor of that as well uh, at some point, that you begin to develop those synergies in the smallest way. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Oh man, anytime. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Positive P was a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.